And our text this morning continues to be 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me tell you why we're in this series called From Eternity to Eternity, How God Claims and Keeps You. We tend to see the love of God through a keyhole. At least I do. It tends to be very small. And one of the ways this text is to function for you is to, is to see the love of God far more expansive. In other words, you've got to reach way back into eternity when God chose to love you before time. And way into eternity when you'll be glorified with Jesus, experiencing His love in this presence. God is, God's love is that big, and everything that pertains to your welfare in between is God loving you. So we're looking at these specific acts of God's love Election next week, calling after that, justification, sanctification, glorification. This is the way God is loving you in time and space, although it spans all of eternity. So this is actually a prayer preceded by a very breathtaking preamble. Here's the preamble. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God shows you as the firstfruits, or I prefer the translation, from the beginning to be saved. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And here's the prayer. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Some of you who have had serious medical conditions have sought out the expertise of a specialist. You want a doctor trained in the very thing that's wrong with you. Does God have a specialty? Welcome back. The God who does all things well and who does whatsoever he pleases indeed does have a specialty. He specializes in the impossible. God brings things into existence out of nothing. And it's clear from the beginning of the Bible. Right in the beginning, in the beginning, God, and God is creating the world out of nothing. There's no material existence. God is speaking it into existence. And throughout the, the biblical history, we see God intervening for desperate and hopeless people to bring life and to bring deliverance where humanly it's impossible. I mean, think of the great salvation event of the Old Testament, the Exodus. Israel's at the edge of the Red Sea. They're being pursued by Pharaoh. This is an impossible situation. But God, God intervenes. He parts the sea. He saves his people. It's in that vein, with that understanding that Paul is writing 
to the precious, beleaguered believers in Thessalonica. And he starts this little preamble in verse 13 with, we ought to give thanks to God, brothers, for you, beloved of the Lord, because he chose you. In fact, this is how he began his first epistle, chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians. He addresses them and he says, We know, brothers, beloved by God, that he chose you. (laughs) God chose you. He did the impossible. In my case, I know this, he made a believer in Jesus out of someone for whom it is absolutely human impossible. Humanly impossible. And the more you get to know yourself, the, the, the more sweet and precious this is. Because when we really get to know ourselves, we realize we have nothing in us that would move us towards God. We don't have the ability to be right with God. We don't even have the desire to be right with God. If I did a Google search over my heart, Mike Sherrod's heart, Google search, and it was looking for an inclination a desire, a will, an impulse to move towards God. Guess how many hits I would get in that search? Zero. There's nothing in your heart or mind that would move us towards God. Left to ourselves, beloved, we are a salvation case stamped with what? What word? Impossible. It's impossible. But God. But God. God does for us what we have no ability or desire to do for ourselves. And that's why in the Bible, God God depicts his salvation as God moving in where we are totally impotent, reversing what we are in our natural state, God doing the impossible. It is supposed to encourage you, assure you, embolden you, and refresh you. So, let's scan the Bible and look at four ways the Bible depicts your salvation because when God depicts your salvation, he does so in terms that makes it clear God is doing what is impossible for me and you. This is how salvation is pictured in the Bible. For example, number one, it is depicted as a spiritual resurrection. The point, if we're dead in sins, he must bring us to life. Wonderful passage in Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. I've got uh, verses 4 to 6 in your handout, but I want you to appreciate the context. Paul begins chapter 2 in Ephesians this way. And you were dead in your sins in which you walked according to the course of this world, according to the course of the power of the air, and you were by nature children of wrath. So he lays out what theologians would call the doctrine of total depravity. You're dead in sin. Let's just back up for one second. Why Paul is doing this is he has prayed at the end of chapter 1 that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know, among other things, the surpassing greatness of God's power toward you who believe. And that raises what question? How, in fact, has the greatness of God's power been exercised in you who believe? How? Chapter 2 is answering that question. He raised you from the dead spiritually. That's why he begins chapter 2. You were dead in your sins, and now we get to verse 4. But God. Literally in the Greek, verse 1 begins, and you, and verse 4 begins, but God. You couldn't make any mistake, the point Paul is making grammatically, linguistically. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. You see the, see the adjectives? Mega love. Rich mercy. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. When did he make you alive, according to that verse? When you were dead. You and I have as much appetite for God spiritually as a dead man has appetite for food. He made you alive when you were dead. It's a spiritual resurrection. Jesus put it this way in John 5.21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives zoe to whom he will. Two words in the Greek language for life. Biological life, that's anybody who has a beating heart, is bios. Spiritual life, that which comes from God, is the very nature of God, indestructible life, eternal life, zoe. None of us are born with that. We get that according to Jesus how. He wills to give it to us. A beautiful picture of this in the New Testament is the raising of Lazarus. Jesus stands before the grave of a dead man. He's dead, just like we are spiritually. And Jesus speaks the word of power, Lazarus come forth, and on the strength of the very spoken powerful word of Jesus, Lazarus comes to life. He had no choice but to come out of the grave. We'll see next week when God calls you, you have no choice but to respond. Thank God! The Old Testament equivalent, if you will, is Ezekiel 37. The prophet is taken into a valley, and there's all these dead bones. And it pictures Israel, hopeless, dead, in their state in exile. And the prophet is told by God, I will cause breath to enter you, and you will live. And then he says, I will put my spirit within you, and you will live. That's us, dead bones, spiritually. When God speaks, we come to life. Here's the most helpful illustration I've heard in my years of ministry to, I think, helps put this in perspective for me. Imagine there's a lake, and this illustration basically pictures different ways human beings have conceived of the way human beings are saved. So here's a lake. A man is out there drowning on the surface of the lake. He realizes he's in trouble. He swims to shore and saves himself. What do we call the doctrine that human beings must save themselves? It's called humanism. If you look at the Humanist Manifesto, it says, man needs no savior, man must save himself. You swim to shore and save yourself. Second picture, man's out there thrashing on the surface of the water, God's on the shoreline, this is a theistic view anyway. They see they were sort of made for each other, they meet halfway and man is saved. God and man sort of, through efforts, meet halfway. I don't know what you label you want to put on that. It isn't even close to the biblical picture. Much closer to the biblical picture. I'm out there thrashing around on the surface of the water. God in his mercy provides a way to be saved. He gives his son Jesus to die for me on the cross and he comes to me in my drowning state and he reaches out his hand and he says, I'll save you, but it's up to you. You've got to take it. Now there is a technical theological term for that. It's called Arminianism. Don't worry about it. It's not going to be on the quiz at the end of the sermon. But it's that salvation is left up to individuals. God doesn't force himself on anybody Beloved, that is not the biblical picture. What is the picture? Where are you? Are you thrashing around on the surface of the lake? No, you are dead at the bottom of the lake where it's dark and damp and cold. You are dead. To be saved, God drains the lake. He raises you up. He breathes life into you and he gives you faith. That is the grace of salvation. He raises the dead. 
Second picture in the Bible, God depicting your salvation, God doing what is impossible with you, spiritual sight. The point, if we're blind, he must open our eyes. I've got one of many verses I could have chosen, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritual phrase. Now, underline the word able because that is expressing ability, not permission. As far as we're concerned, everyone has permission from God to understand things spiritually and come to God. This is talking about the inability of human beings because they lack the desire to understand the things of God. Let me put it this way. If I got an email in, in Japanese, Japanese, I'm not going to understand a word of it because there's nothing in my mind, nothing that is able to appraise the meaning of Japanese words. Nothing. It's n- meaningless to me. The natural man has nothing in him that appraises spiritual things. My own experience. I was raised in a church-going home. We went to an Episcopal church till I was 21. I sang all the Christmas carols. I sang about Jesus and salvation and his redemption of the Christmas carols. And it wasn't until I was saved and began singing that I went, oh my goodness, look what I've been singing all these years. Didn't make any, it was like Japanese, spiritually, to me. In the Book of Common Prayer, didn't Cramner put the gospel in the liturgy of the Book of Common Prayer? I said those prayers in that liturgy week after week Year after year, I said the words, none of them landed with reality in my heart. I didn't have the Spirit. The truth of the Gospel, my sin, Jesus' salvation, is in the liturgy of the Episcopal prayer book. And I said those words and it made, it made no difference. It didn't save me because I didn't have the Spirit. I, didn't, I had no ability to spiritually appraise those things. Look how Paul writes in his You just got a piece of autobiography from me. Look at Paul's autobiographical statement in Galatians 1. But when he who had set me apart before I was born. Isn't that a fun thing to be able to say? Before I was born, God set me apart. And who called me by his grace. I'll talk about calling next week. was pleased to reveal his son to me. Why was Paul a Christian? What's he saying? Why? It pleased God to reveal Jesus to him. That's why I'm a Christian. That's why you're a Christian. It pleased God to reveal him to you. Otherwise, there's no hope. We're not going to get it. That why? 2 Corinthians 4.4 The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. What a tragic Thing. Blind. Human beings don't have any, any ability to overcome this. They're, they're dead in darkness. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1. He delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. See, it's if you and I are in a room, and, and in this room are these beautiful paintings of the glory of God and honest depictions of who we are as human beings, but the lights are out. We can't see. We can't make sense of it. 
And it's only when the Spirit of God comes upon you and opens the eyes of your heart and you begin to read the Word of God, that's what God is like. That's what God really requires. That's who I really am. Now, I flee to Jesus and I'm transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Blindness is actually the physical thing that was involved, as you probably know, in Paul's conversion. He became physically blind. And he, Jesus began to deal with him. And at one point in Acts 9-8, it says something like scales began to fall from his eyes. He saw Jesus in a whole new light. Sometimes our conversions are dramatic, Damascus Road Sometimes lots, long process. It takes a long time. Michael and Sam and Melanie and their teachers, they're laboring with our children, sowing seeds, sowing seeds, sowing seeds, trusting in God's appointed time. Jesus is pleased to reveal himself. Parents, be patient with your kids. Pray for your kids. Model the gospel to your kids. Sometimes it's gonna, it might be four years old. It might be 10. It might be 18. It might not be till they're 40. Keep praying. Keep sowing. In God's time, may he be pleased to reveal his son to them. Third picture Depicting your salvation. This is how God wants you to think about your salvation. God doing the impossible for you because you can't. Spiritual birth. And the point simply is God creates life where it did not exist before. You see, compassionate pictures of this in the Old Testament where there are women who are barren. They can't have babies. And by the supernatural, kind intervention of God, they get pregnant. It's a picture of our spiritual birth. We, we can't give birth to ourselves. Incidentally, how many of you in this room willed your physical existence? You decided one time, I'm going to be born to my parents in 1956. How many? None of us. And the Bible says, exhibit A of what we are spiritually. This reason from your physical existence to your spiritual. This is exactly the way John does it in John chapter 1, 12 and 13. I've got it on the outline for you. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now I'm going to push pause. What is that verse saying? Uh, more precisely, what question is it answering? Think about last week's sermon. What question is that answering? It's answering the question, how do I become a Christian? What's the answer? I believe in Christ and receive him. The result of that is, I'm adopted into his family. None of us are born children of God. We become children of God by receiving Christ and believing in his name. So this is looking at salvation from a human point of view. What must you do to be right with God? Believe in Christ and receive him. Okay? Next verse. Who were born? Speaking of children of God. Who were born? Not of blood, nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. <laughs> what question is this answering? Why did this happen? Answer, God caused me to be born again. I wasn't born a believer in Jesus. I was born in solidarity with Adam, a sinner, a child of wrath. That's what I was born. No one can stick a gun to my head and cause me to be born again. There's no evangelistic crusade that can warp someone into being born again. You're born of God. And if you want this new birth, just ask. Just ask. He'll never delay answering that prayer. 
Jesus said the same thing to Nicodemus. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. So you say, I, I'd love to know what God is like. I'd love to know what kingdom life is like. I'd love to live in the kingdom of God. There's an absolute necessary prerequisite. What is it? You must be born from above first, then you see. Peter echoes the same thing in 1 Peter 1.3. According to his great mercy, God caused us to be born again to a living hope. There's a popular view in America that you believe the gospel and as a result you're born again. It's just the opposite. The truth is just the opposite. You are born again that you might believe. If we're dead, there's no belief there. Now, well, let's keep going. I've got a question. 1 Corinthians 1.30, because of him you're in Christ. Why am I in Christ? It was God's doing. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. See, by definition, a new creation exists by a power of something outside of it, bringing it into existence. Since my wife retired, she's taken a painting. We have beautiful paintings in Hatsey in our home in Virginia. All of those paintings are creations. They're the product of someone producing them. Paul is saying, if you're in Christ, you're the product of God doing that. You have almost a comical illustration of this in the Old Testament. Moses has been leading the people of God in the wilderness for 40 years, and he has to write the law again because a whole generation of Israelites have died. We have, therefore, Deuteronomos, the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 29, towards the end, he says this, to the people he's been leading through the wilderness. Yet to this day, God has not given you a heart to know, eyes to see, or ears to hear. Why doesn't Israel know God, according to that verse? Why don't they know God? He hadn't given a heart to know him. Why don't they see? He hadn't given them eyes. Why don't they hear? He hadn't given them ears. Now, beloved... Are these human beings responsible to respond to God? Are they responsible to know God, to see God, to hear God? Absolutely. Their sin is not God's fault. <laughs> Moses is saying, you guys, God hasn't given you a heart to know. He hasn't given you eyes to see, ears to hear. So on hearing that, what should they immediately have said? Give it to us. I want to know God. Give me that heart. He'll answer that prayer for any and every one of us. He'll never delay answering that prayer. The New Testament equivalent, if you will, would be the conversion of Lydia in Acts 16. Paul's by a river. He's preaching to a group of women. Uh, one woman named Lydia is there. And it says this in Acts 16:14. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So if you could picture it, you'd see words coming out of Paul's mouth. Words coming out of Paul's mouth. And everybody is sitting there listening. And why did Lydia respond? God did this. I'm giving her understanding. The Lord opened her heart. He can open your heart today to understand this and Jesus. The Lord opened her heart. That's why she's converted. You're converted because the Lord opened your heart. I'm converted because the Lord opened my heart. <laughs> Finally, last depiction of your salvation showing you God does what's impossible with you is that uh, your salvation is the result of, I, I don't know that this is a good word, I just have spiritual search here. God sovereignly initiates where we have no initiative. So Matthew 11, Jesus has been denouncing unbelieving cities in Galilee. You know why they're unbelieving? 
because of their sin. And Jesus is holding them responsible for it. And he begins to comment on this. God hiding from, from the wise and revealing himself to babes. And then he says this. Please look at this verse in your outline because we need to do a little of theological math. No one knows the Father except the Son, nor does anyone know the Son except the Father and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So here's the first equation. How many people know the Father? No one. Zero with one exception. Who's the exception? The Son. Know the Father? No one with one exception. Jesus. Next equation. How many people know Jesus? How many people know Jesus? No one with one exception. The Father. Oh, there's another exception. Take a look at the verse. What is it? And anyone to whom the Father wills to reveal him. The Son wills to reveal him. Jesus couldn't be more plain. No one knows God. And if the Son wills reveal him, you will know him. If you don't know God and you want to know God, ask Jesus to reveal him. He most certainly will. I, I just, I look at that and I, how do you get around that? <laughs> Who wants to get around that? That's, it's wonderful. John 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me, again, permission, excuse me, not permission, but ability. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him, unless it has been granted him by the Father. Jesus told his own disciples, Obviously, you didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you should bear much fruit. And then I've just summarized a brief portion of Ephesians 1, which is a breathtaking meditation on this very grace of God's predestinating, electing grace. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Grace, beloved, from beginning to end. Grace. Do you want it? Ask for it. He will give it. How do you know this has happened to you? How do you know you become a recipient of grace? Well, you've reckoned honestly with the impossible. You get out your case study of yourself. You see stamped on it, impossible. I don't have the ability or the desire, but now I realize I'm spiritually bankrupt, and I want Jesus as the solution to that. I want Jesus. Jesus will save you. If you respond in your heart to that, you know God's chosen you. And some of you might have an objection right now that, no, wait, you're saying God does all this, but it often feels like we're in control of the process. So? feels that way. Here's one illustration I heard years ago that was helpful to me. I'm in a drunken stupor on the sofa in my living room. Sin has put me in a drunken stupor, unresponsive to God. The Holy Spirit goes in the basement and lights a fire. After a while, the room begins to fill with smoke, and it gets very, very hot. And I wake up out of my stupor, and I run to the door for salvation, and there's Jesus. <laughs> the only reason I responded is God started the fire in the basement and brought me to Jesus. This is why the Bible teaches us that what you need to be saved, faith and repentance, are gifts of his grace. 
For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it's the gift of God. Uh, Acts 5.31, Jesus is granting repentance to both Israel and the Gentiles. He gives repentance as a gift. You say, I can't become a Christian without earnest repentance and faith. Okay, he'll give you those. Ask for them. Say, Holy Spirit, create in me true faith. I want true repentance. He will do it. He won't delay. I think the only people delaying in this are us. (laughs) Why? Why delay life in Jesus? Why delay the beauty and the glory of God? Acts 11 18, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So, beloved, you see, the, your salvation is the delightful working of the Trinity. God the Father from all eternity choosing you, willing your salvation. Jesus Christ in time and space justifying you through his perfect righteousness and death on the cross. Jesus justifying you. And the Holy Spirit giving you the instrument of faith, of salvation, faith. The Holy Spirit giving you faith. You're saved by faith. You're saved by the work of Christ. You're saved by the sovereign choice of God. It's all the work of the triune God. So I put a definition for you in the outline. And I realize this is beginning to bleed over into effectual calling and we have a whole sermon next week on that. But for for now, let's just read this definition and we're almost finished. God, by his gracious sovereign initiative, wooed me to himself, opened my eyes, created faith and repentance in my heart, and persuaded and enabled me to put my trust in Jesus. Finding him irresistible through the Spirit's efficacious work, Jesus drew me to himself, transferred me from darkness to light, took out my heart of stone, gave me a heart of flesh, so that I could not, not become a believer. If you can tolerate two negatives. So briefly as we conclude... Uh, Two powerful benefits to this. Number one, the promise that God is bigger than your sin. Again, if you got to know yourself honestly, and maybe even today you say, I I don't believe this stuff, I don't believe in God, I'm not sure about the Bible. You know your own heart, you know your heart, you know this isn't in you. You experience that it's not in you. God says, I'm bigger than that. I can take out your heart and give you a new heart. The promise of Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I can't obey God. I can't love people. I can't love God unless God gives me this new heart. (laughs) In my natural state, I'm cold, dead, not seeking, not desiring God. He gives us a new heart. But I want you to notice this. The cost to having a new heart. The verse right before that promise of Ezekiel 36 is verse 25, in which we read God's promise, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. That verse anticipates the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So you need to know that this stony heart that you have is, as it were, untouchable by the holy hands of God. For God to take it out, it must be cleansed. It must be washed. And there's one place on earth to receive that. The blood of Jesus. Oh, his cross is powerful enough to cleanse the vilest of us all. All of us. And when we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ... God's hands can come in and change our hearts. Yes, I know that faith is, we've already had a changed heart, but you see the point. Oh, without Jesus, there's no hope. 
So it's as if, you know, the love of Christ, it's immeasurable, but it's not impossible. All things are possible with God. The love of God for you promised through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's the last point, the promise of God's unfailing love. This is what the people in Thessalonica needed. They needed this comfort. It's verse 16. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who's loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. Comfort you. See what he's doing now. Paul is saying, look expansively at the love of God. Go eternal comfort. It's from eternity past when he chose you, and it goes into eternity forever and ever. <laughs> eternal comfort. You can't out Run it in space. A trillion galaxies that way, it's that way. A trillion galaxies that way, it's that way. It's eternal comfort. And it gives us good hope, confidence that I'm loved by God no matter what I do. And it's all grace, 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 grace. You know that, Wallace. You love the grace of God. Now let us ooze out of our pores the way we love and care for one another and see that we find this grace and this hope in our struggle with sin. Let's pray. God of all comfort, God of all grace, God of all encouragement, God of the impossible, we are so grateful in a world where we are without desire or ability to move towards you. You delight to do the impossible amazing. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for changing us. Thank you for showing us Jesus, that there is a sufficient cleansing in his precious blood. There is an all-encompassing freedom in his powerful cross. There is hope forever in his resurrection. Minister this gospel to the hearts of my brothers and sisters for your glory's sake and their comfort's sake. Amen.